Well, uh, as Eric mentioned, my name is Alan. It's good to be with you. Uh, Eric kind of set that bar really high, so I just want to lower a few uh, pegs so that uh, there aren't too crazy of expectation. But uh, I do love Lighthouse Church. I actually attended this church way back, uh, probably before some of you were even alive. That's how old I am. Um, So I was at the church when I was in college when it was still meeting at a high school. And uh, I don't think there was a youth group back then because there were no kids uh, in youth. But uh, I grew a lot from that church. And uh, after college, I came back to speak for various ministries. I got to preach for a college retreat. And then uh, I also got to preach for, I think, high school years ago. And then now I'm back and they gave me a promotion because now I'm preaching to junior high. So I counted uh, one of the highlights of uh, my ministry career, I guess. Um, they also asked me to speak for an all-church retreat, but I told them no. Uh, only youth. Just kidding. Um, they didn't ask me for all-church. I was crushed, but God's grace is sufficient. Um, but I, I really do enjoy this particular uh, age group. Uh, I used to be a college and youth pastor. And it was really a lot of fun ministering and seeing uh, young lives molded by the Word of God and just chilling with kids you know Um, and so I hope to be able to uh, be reminded of those good memories and feel young and cool again and even if you don't think I am just help me out and keep that to yourself Uh, but again uh, we my family uh, my wife's not here she's putting uh, the kids to sleep but we are looking forward to getting to know you guys better so uh, we hope that uh, you guys will eat lunch with us and hang out with us and stuff like that Um, But we do want to, not only for me to come and and be able to bring God's word, but just to spend time getting to know you and what's going on in your life. So uh, just a quick roadmap of what we're going to be covering this weekend. We're going to be studying what it means to treasure Christ, treasuring Jesus Christ. And what we're going to attempt to do in this first message is kind of hit the main themes for the rest of the weekend. Um, And so kind of consider this an introduction for uh, the rest of our retreats, treasuring Jesus Christ. And I think when we when we talk about that, it sounds very uh, appealing, very attractive. We know that as Christians, we should prize Jesus. We should value him. We should treasure him. And so we know it's the Christian thing to do. But before we even get to discussing what that actually means, uh, you can't treasure what you don't know. Right. Uh, I think it's very logical and makes a lot of sense to us. You can't treasure what you know, what you don't know. So first and foremost, we need to answer this important question. What does it actually mean for us to know Jesus Christ? And I think when we talk about that word know, uh, various things pop into our heads. You know, is it like how we know information? How two plus two equals four? Is it just data we've stored in our heads, like maybe your cell phone number or your home address where you live? Or is it how we know certain people in our lives, like the mailman, uh, classmate, or our siblings? And when we travel into that uh, area of knowing people, well, it opens all sorts of ways we can know someone based on the kind of relationship we have with them. You know, are we talking about a relationship a knowledge of someone who's 
not real, like Batman, or someone famous, a celebrity like Beyonce, or is it a person close and familiar to us like our dads? What does it mean then to really know Jesus Christ? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us. Uh, the Apostle Paul helps us in answering this question. And so for our time tonight, we're going to be looking at Philippians 3. Philippians 3, studying verses 7 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, our retreat, this Treasuring Christ theme, we're going to pull all of our message from the book of Philippians to kind of reinforce uh, our theme and also so that you get a good handle upon this book. But for tonight, um, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, you might know of this passage. It's a very popular section of scripture. But what we're going to see are three characteristics that kind of help us understand what it means to truly know Christ. So I'll go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll pray really quickly for our time, and then we'll jump in. Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. Apostle Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that my, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God, we ask for help now. Many of us are tired or weary uh, whether it's from school or traveling up to this retreat site. And so we ask that you would be gracious to provide us energy, to be attentive, to understand your word. And most importantly, would you provide the grace to not only understand your word uh, with our minds, uh, but to embrace it with our hearts. Lord, to be changed and transformed by it, to accept what you teach us as good, as precious, as instruction that is for our benefit, that it will shape how we live. God, that we would treasure Jesus because we know who he is. And so help us now. We are in dire need of your spirit to be here to convict and challenge. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to first see is that knowing the person of Jesus Christ is treasuring him. Which is where we get our retreat theme. Knowing the person of Jesus Christ is first treasuring him. Treasuring him. Now, if you're familiar with this chapter in Philippians, what Paul does is he spends two previous verses essentially bragging, boasting about how he's awesome. And so he lists all these reasons for why people around him, whether friends or foes, why they should all envy and respect him. We can just glance really quickly at verse 5. Here are his credentials, what sets him apart. He is circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
So Paul begins by rambling about his impressive upbringing and his accomplishments. We find out he's from a noble background, belonging not only to the privileged people of God, the Israelites, but even the special, the wanted tribe of Benjamin. And so you and I know we don't get to choose what family we're from. We don't get to decide our lineage. But Paul here is fortunate enough to have a blessed family tree. And it's not just his heritage. Paul's achievements also set him apart. He's a man filled with conviction. A man regarded to be without fault. Blameless, it says. Paul, you see, is the model citizen, the shining example of how to be religious and righteous. You know, he'd probably be on the poster of, um, I don't know, Awana for, for being outstanding in uh, knowing the Bible. And so if anyone had a vibrant relationship with God, we would guess, we would expect it to be the Apostle Paul. And isn't that how we usually measure ourselves and others, spiritually speaking? You know, maybe we have a checklist in our minds on how do you evaluate someone and, and their faith. You know, whether they are a serious Christian or a phony one. And like Paul, maybe our resume might read something like this. You know, that we were baptized in kindergarten. Uh, you know, I'm of the church of Lighthouse, of a pastor's or deacon's family, a theologian of theologians. As to the Bible, I'm always reading every day. As to attendance, I never skip a Sunday. As the behavior, well, I'm better than those I'm sitting next to. These are the marks, right? These are the signs we kind of look for to figure out how we're doing with God. And even if we don't completely match up, these are the things we're shooting for, trying to be better at, or, or the things we admire in other people who are spiritually mature. Now, while none of these spiritual qualities are necessarily bad, it is not the standard that Paul ultimately uses. We see this because in one verse, Paul nosedives. Look at verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had. So all this bragging I just did, whatever gain I had, this advantage over others, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so he packages all that he has previously listed and he makes a startling statement. All that he has been blessed with, all that he has done in his great life, all that contributes to his spotless reputation, all that he once thought religious, good, and gain, he now sees with new eyes. What does the text say? Paul declares them as loss. And to make us feel the weightiness of this statement, Paul slows us down says, whatever gain I had, these very things I counted as loss. And this word counted is a very uh, technical word. It's a word that is often used with accounting, with finances, with numbers, you know, with calculations and calculators. And so what Paul is doing is he's talking about pros and cons, pluses and minuses, profits and debts. Paul is kind of like a math whiz. And in the grand equation of his life, he evaluates his life and he declares after the equal sign would be loss. You'd be in the negative. Now we have to understand this. Paul is not ignorant. 
He's not rushing to his conclusion. He's not reckless and just dumping these things together and lighting it all on fire only to regret it later. Paul is very intentional. He's thought it through. It's as if Paul is bringing his life before the grocery checkout line. And he takes every part of his life out of the shopping cart and really considers the value of each item. And so he takes his birth certificate, maybe his report cards, his trophies, his life prior to Jesus Christ, and he runs each piece through the barcode scanner, and with a blip, the price flashes before his eyes, and it's loss, loss, loss. What leads to such a conclusion for Paul? Well, we only need to look at how this verse breaks down. If we were to cut it in half, the verse kind of parallels except for one part. It says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. But here's the difference maker. Here's the pattern breaker. He says, for the sake of Christ. And so it's Jesus. Jesus is the game changer. And that may make us wonder, well, what's so special about Jesus that would lead Paul to make this shocking remark? What is it about Jesus that causes Paul to re-examine what he truly treasures in life? Because this point is knowing Christ is a treasuring of Christ. And so Paul explains himself in verse 8. Look down in your Bibles. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So verse 8 sounds a lot like verse 7, right? And yet there are small differences, subtle changes. Because Paul ups the stakes. He is intensifying the situation because he expands his evaluation to include not only the things he has listed in those previous verses, verse 5 and 6, but he makes a universal claim. Paul now brings out his giant broom and he sweeps everything, everything into one pile. And he looks at that pile and he gives one grand final verdict. I count everything as loss. Loss. Again, very similar to verse 7. Paul doesn't say everything is merely neutral, but negative. Not just regular items in life, but rubbish. And this word rubbish, well, it's a word picture if there's ever one. You know, this word is used elsewhere uh, to describe a half-eaten corpse. You know, just really nasty things like, uh, like lumps of manure. And Paul says treasuring worldly things is like gathering rotting flesh into your pocket or collecting nasty doo-doo in trash bags. That's disgusting, right? Gross. How can the apostle Paul say these things? And we wonder, really, Paul? Everything, everything in life is trash, waste, rubbish? I mean, what about the good things in life, Paul? Like family, like success, like serving other people. Surely you can't say those things are bad. You can't say those things are lost, can you? There's a quote from uh, a guy named John Newton. 
he wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, I love this quote. He said, when the Lord, when God has put us in the possession of the pearl of great price, the gain or loss of a pebble is hardly worth a serious thought. You see, the worth and the value, the price tag of something is based upon what it's compared to. You know, if you have a, a, a nice car, Ferrari, you know, and then someone gives you a quarter, well, you're not going to be that excited about it because of the Ferrari, right? Or if you lose that quarter, you're not going to be in tears because you have the Ferrari. It's in comparison to something else. And that's why Paul has been using these financial words like count, gain, loss. You see, it's not that family, success, serving other people, or in Paul's case, his ethnicities, his background, his achievements. It's not that those things are bad, wrong, or lost, but they are lost. They are negative in comparison to Jesus Christ. They pale in comparison with Jesus because he's incomparable. And when anything competes with treasuring Jesus, when Paul's eyes, it's no longer helpful, but harmful. And this is exactly how Paul views Jesus. That knowing Christ is about treasuring him, so much so that anything in life, everything that doesn't help him love Jesus more, looks like trash on a plate. I mean, just listen to his own words. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Here's why. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Why is knowing Jesus about treasuring him? Well, Paul provides a unique clue in this verse that's often absent in his other writings. And we need to pay attention because it's one word we're likely to overlook. One word we probably missed when reading this verse. It's two letters. My. My. Paul rarely inserts such a personal comment when he speaks about Jesus. But it provides us a huge clue to the essence of knowing Christ. What knowing him really means. That he's my Christ. That he's my Lord and Savior. You know, you, you, most of you haven't met my wife right now, and so I could describe her to you. And there's many ways I can describe her to you. You know, I can give you her 401, all this information about her, right? I can tell you her name, Barry Tai, age 31, ethnicity, Taiwanese, height, small, right? And I can tell you all these details about her life, that she's the mother of, uh, to our two children, Madison and Everett, that she works as a nurse at UCLA, that the love of her life is yours truly, and so on and so on. But with the help of Google and some creepy research, you could probably find out all the same stuff. You could dig up all this information about someone named Barry Pang Tai. But what separates you from knowing her like I do is not all the information you can pull up. You get that far, you've done a background check on a person. To you, it's not personal. You have no real relationship with her. But for me, she is my wife. It is very personal. You see the difference? For Paul, 
knowing Jesus has never been about a set of dry statistics or boring Bible knowledge, trivia, just stuck into his brain. Knowing Christ has never been reduced to just do's and don'ts, a list of responsibilities that we have, that a good Christian should do, like reading the Bible or showing up to youth group. Knowing Christ has always been about a person and a relationship with him. So much so that you love him. So much so that you treasure him. That's why you read your Bible. Because you want to know him. To hear him speak to you through the pages of scripture. That's why you want to pray. So that you can respond. You want to know him and speak back to him in prayer. Knowing Christ is a relationship. So let me ask. Guys, do you find your heart echoing Paul? Christ Jesus is my Lord. You see, when you have this kind of relationship with Jesus, not one that is distant and stale, but near, tenderness filled with intimacy that comes from actually knowing a person, well, then everything else will fall into place. It's no wonder Paul is excited. And he can exclaim everything as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Because it would be as insane for me to prize my birth certificate or credit card over treasuring my wife. Knowing Christ is treasuring because he is the best person to love, serve, live for, honor, and know. And nothing and no one else comes close. Now why is gaining and treasuring Christ everything? What is it again about Jesus that sets him apart from everything and everyone else? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging, but this connects to our second point. So knowing Jesus is treasuring, and knowing Jesus, secondly, is trusting. Knowing Jesus is trusting. We resume in verse 9. So at the end of verse 8, he says, In order that I may gain Christ... And then he kind of explains, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul continues by discussing what it means to gain and treasure Christ. It means to be found in him, he says. And to us, we're still left scratching our heads because we don't find that too helpful. What does he mean? What is Paul getting at? Well, for the remainder of this verse, Paul unpacks. He zooms out and he places life in a greater context. He sets it against the grand scheme of things. So your life painted against the backdrop of eternity, of heaven and hell, the holiness of God and our sinfulness before him. We mentioned the way you measure value is by comparing it to something else. But there is also another way we measure value. You also measure value based on what you believe and trust to be of greatest importance. 
to be of greatest importance. And I'll prove it to you. You know, you work hard on that piano piece, right? Slaving away for hours on end. Or you practice again and again your baseball swing. If you see performance as ultimate. Victory as ultimate. Or you yearn for the praise and approval from your family and friends. Trying to be obedient. Trying to do things that will please others. If you see their approval as ultimate. If you see people as ultimate. You devote countless hours to studying and to hitting the textbooks and to preparing for the exams if you see school as ultimate. It's all the same. Just different objects. In every scenario, in every situation, what you treasure is what you trust to be of greatest importance of ultimate God. And Paul applies the same principle to life. He strives for righteousness because he sees God as ultimate. Yes, you may experience the difficulties of playing well on the field. Maybe being accepted by others at school or scoring straight A's on your report card. But listen, students, ultimately, the greatest problem you will ever face according to the Bible, is how you as a sinner can be made right, righteous, before a holy God. There's nothing more significant, important, and ultimate than being on right terms and in right standing with the creator of the universe. I mean, money, material possessions, fame, it doesn't matter If things are not good with God. If God's wrath still hangs over your head. Until sin be bitter, well, your Savior, Jesus Christ, will not be sweet to you. Until sin is terrible and terrifying in your own eyes, you will have no need for Jesus. You will not trust in Christ. And the problem only gets more serious, gets harder, when you and I realize... Okay, this is not something I can figure out on my own. This is not something I can solve by my own efforts, by my own intellect, by my own skills. School problems, friendship problems, hobby problems, you know, you might be able to handle on your own. But Paul, he's haunted because he's got a God problem. And no matter what he does, no matter how privileged he is, No matter how blameless he's been, he is not righteous before God. And listen, this comes from the Apostle Paul, who penned and wrote most of the New Testament. His family background and his religious awards, they speak for him. And yet even he confesses his inability, his fallenness. He says, not having a righteousness of my own before a perfect God, he's imperfect. And if Paul stands helpless before God, well, how much more so do we? I mean, what chance do we have, guys? Despite your growing popularity, your flawless 4.0, your perfect church attendance, your best behavior each and every day, 
you still fall short of the glory of God. You've sinned against an eternally glorious God. And there is nothing in your life you can point to to make yourself righteous before God. The only one you can point to is Jesus. Do you understand now why it is so crucial, so important for Paul to be found in Christ? Because there's nothing good within him. So he needs to go searching for another. Let me illustrate through a story. There was this, uh, you might have heard of it. There was this farmer and his daughter. And they were fleeing these huge brush fires that were coming up on them. And, and the wind really picked up the pace of these flames. And these brush fires were coming at them at a rapid pace. Blown towards the father and his daughter at frightening speed. And as they were fleeing and making their way through the field, trying to escape, the father worked it out in his head. It was only a matter of minutes before these huge flames would catch up to them and consume them, burn them to a crisp. And so they couldn't outrun their fate, these fires. And so as a last resort, the father wisely lit a match and burned the fields in front of them. And the wind, that same wind carrying the approaching fire, also carried the fire in front of them, it forward. And with seconds to spare, the father and his daughter stood upon that charred field. And they turned around to see, to watch these approaching brush fires stop right at the feet of the scorched ground. And the father turned to his daughter and said, the fire cannot burn where it has already burned. Guys, in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God cannot burn where it has already burned. Do you see that? That's why Paul wants to be found in Christ. Because Jesus is, only the, is the only safe place. Paul can find no other way to be righteous before a holy God than to be inside of Christ. So you want to build your relationship with God? Then it's very simple. You return to the cross. And you rehearse the good news. Because Christianity, most fundamentally, is not about what you and I do. Christianity is about what God has done. Knowing Christ is a trusting, not in your own righteousness, but a righteousness of another. The righteousness from God that is yours by faith, by trusting in His Son. In other words, the gospel. Now this sounds like a good deal, quite a bargain, right? If we just trust Jesus, then everything will be squared away. But listen, this is not easy believism. This isn't just saying a prayer once, walking an aisle, professing Jesus, and then, oh, I'm good and golden for the rest of my life. I can just go on and do whatever I want. And knowing Christ is treasuring and trusting. And this is then visible in the life we live, which is what Paul gets at in our last point. And knowing Christ is transforming. Lastly, knowing Christ is transforming. Look at verse 10. Paul now says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sounds confusing, I know, but we'll walk through this together. So in verse 10, Paul now focuses on knowing Jesus in two specific areas. He writes it out for us. The power of his resurrection, and then he also says, and sharing in his sufferings. Two key areas that essentially Paul wants to study more, to find out more about. The power of Jesus' resurrection focuses on God's miraculous power to raise the dead to life. But you see, the power of Jesus' resurrection is not just the power to grant life, but what makes the power of Jesus' resurrection so amazing is that it, undo, it undoes the effect of sin. It reverses the curse of sin, and that is demonstrated when Jesus conquers the grave, right? When he resurrects to life. The second part, sharing in his suffering, that kind of surprises us more, catches us off guard. We get it that Paul is fascinated with Jesus' power. We're not as interested on participating in pain. In fact, it's more literally to know the fellowship of his suffering. Fellowship of his suffering. And that strikes us as weird, right? That's odd. We don't throw around the word fellowship the same way Paul does. When we talk about fellowship, we think of what? Hanging out, going to the mall, eating good food like Taco Bell, playing video games, and on and on. I mean, if someone tried to rally everyone after youth group, and said, guys, let's forget the snackies. We'll ditch them. We won't even play PlayStation. You know, let's fellowship by fasting. And let's see who can come the closest to death. <laughs> that would be awesome. You know, you'd be like, who is this guy? And you walk oh, away from them uh, very carefully, very slowly. <laughs> no one wants to fellowship by suffering. Let's fellowship over gummy bears, right? Over board games and movies. But Paul here, he desires so much to know Jesus that includes everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly. How many of you here are Laker fans? Yes? Oh, you guys are awake. That's amazing. So as Laker fans, hopefully uh, you guys aren't so young that you don't know who Kobe Bryant is. But I'm sure that there are also among us many Kobe friends. Kobe fans. Uh, but there's a way to, to tell the difference between someone who is a casual Kobe fan uh, and someone who is a diehard Kobe Bean Bryant fan like Josh Scott. Uh, how do you tell them apart? It's very easy, right? Everyone is going to cheer for Kobe when he's doing amazing things. When he's making ridiculous plays, bailing out his team from a fourth quarter deficit, or dropping 81 points on the opposing force. But the truest fans, the, the ones who worship Kobe Bryant, are the ones who mourn with him when he tears his ACL. Or, or they start crying when, when Father Time catches up to Kobe, and they're devastated to hear that he's retired. The truest Kobe fans are not those who, who only recognize him, who are only faithful and back him up when he's at the peak of his career. No, the truest Kobe fans are those who remain devoted when he's suffering, when his play is starting to decline. Why? Because we love that man, right? We love him. It's the adversity 
the trials, the doubters and sufferings that will make Kobe's return from retirement all the more sweeter when he leads the Lakers to his sixth NBA championship. (laughs) Anyways, to a far greater degree then, that's what Paul wants to do. He loves and yearns to know Christ not only when Jesus is doing well and popular, not only when he's powerful, but also in his suffering, in his pain, in his weakness. And listen, the two are connected. You can't separate them. And I'll show you how. You just stay with me. I know it's getting late. We're going to do something dangerous at 10, 10. We're going to try to think, okay? So, so here we go. Uh, hopefully, if you, if you track along, it will be worth it in the end. But what Paul is saying is, for those of us who are found in Christ, we are reminded, we put our hope in, we experience the power of Jesus' resurrection when we suffer like Jesus. So what happens is we have to live out the gospel, right? What is the gospel? We die to self and depend on Christ. And when do we do that? Most of all, when we are placed in situations where we don't and can't live by our own strength. And so in those circumstances, we die, if you will, to our own power. And it's then and only then that we can experience the power of salvation. The very divine power at work in raising Jesus from the grave. Because we cast aside our own strength and look to his. And Paul is saying, that's what I want to know more. Paul needs to be stripped of his tendency to trust in himself and his paper-thin righteousness. And fellowshipping with Jesus' sufferings brings Paul to his knees. So he's not only, no longer looking within, but he's looking outward. It puts him in situations where he is robbed of looking anywhere but at the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Students, knowing Christ transforms how you view life and how you live it. And our relationship with him shapes our relationships in life. You see, we no longer have to clench our fists in frustration when we're not cutting it in our classes. We no longer need to hang our heads at the harsh remarks of those who mock us for our faith. We no longer need to sulk or or be depressed and hopeless in our struggle against sin. Because in Christ, we're free to admit that we're weak. We're free to admit our weakness in our suffering so that then and only then we rest and rely upon the strength of Christ. And in all those moments, it lifts our chin up to God. In those moments, we are being prepared to think of Jesus the righteousness we have in him, the life that awaits us in eternity, and his resurrection power that proves it all. This is what the apostle meant elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 to 9. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
Look, Superman would make a terrible Christian. He wouldn't look beyond his ability to fly, his x-ray vision, and his gigantic muscles, right? It's my struggle too. I know, we're we're both just too strong. Not supposed to laugh. (laughs) But Superman, you see, he wouldn't know Jesus because he's so absorbed in how awesome he is. He doesn't need the help of another. Only those broken and weak look to the power of another. And when you and I, as Christians even, are faced with how frail and needy we are, how unable and powerless in the face of sufferings, then we remember, then we rely on God and His surpassing power. You see, every experience of the power of His resurrection and fellowship of His suffering, it, it moves us forward. It helps us look forward to that day when we will see Jesus face to face, which is why Paul ends where he does in verse 11. He is catapulting us to when we will finally experience our salvation fully, when our hope will be fully realized, when faith will turn into sight, when we too are raised from death with new glorified bodies to enjoy God and to know Christ forever. Knowing Christ is transforming because we show by the way we live that our gaze is not upon ourselves or upon this world, but the life that is to come. The life we will have when we will be with Him. Jim Elliott, some of you might know, was a missionary uh, to native Indians, Wa'arani Indians in Ecuador. And he and four of his other buddies committed their lives to sharing the gospel to this unreached people group. And so what they did was, after college, uh, they had all these promising futures lined up for them. And many of their peers, their friends and families, they, they tried to persuade Jim Elliott and his four friends not to go. Not to go to the mission field. But they wanted nothing more than to share about Jesus to these Wa'arani Indians. And so after years of planning and praying, Elliot and his friends started to establish contact with the Wa'arani Indians. And things looked very promising in the beginning. Relationships were built. Communication occurred. But after several months, out of nowhere, the Wa'arani Indians ambushed Jim Elliot and four of his missionary friends, and they killed them, all of them. Jim Elliot's body was found down the river, speared to death. And many in America would mourn the death of these young men. They would call it a tragedy that such bright lives would be lost at such a young age. But you see, the secret is Jim Elliot lived and breathed Philippians 3. His journal entry for October 28, 1949 expresses his belief that mission work was more important than even his own life. And it's in that journal entry he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You might have heard of it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know, I don't share that story because it's tragedy. I share that story because Jim Elliott got it. Don't pity him. Don't feel sorry for him. Don't miss how the quote ends. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
Because we're all going to die. But what he gained, he will never lose eternal life in Jesus Christ. So yes, Jim Elliot lost his earthly life. But what he gained was a treasure that made all other treasures trash. Knowing Jesus in treasuring, trusting, and transforming. Let's pray. God, we ask for your grace that you would soften our hearts and make them ready soil, that your word would be planted deep within, that it would bring about a new view and assessment of Jesus Christ, that we would not only know him with our minds, but that would trickle down and touch our hearts, that we would know him personally because we see our need of him. We see how beautiful, wonderful, and loving he is that he would die for sinners like us. And so casting our pride aside, trusting no longer in ourselves, we place our faith in him and we desire to know him thoroughly, so much so that we may become like him in every regard. So God, continue to teach us this weekend. Help us to have good rest that we might be attentive to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.